Today at Reader's Corner, Ben McIntyre, author of the new book, Prisoners of the Castle, an epic story of survival and escape from Kolditz, the Nazi's fortress prison. I'm Bob Custer. Welcome to Reader's Corner. During World War II, the German army used the towering Kolditz Castle to hold the most defiant Allied prisoners. For four years, these prisoners of the castle tested its walls and its guards with ingenious escape attempts that would become legend. In his latest book, Prisoners of the Castle, an epic story of survival and escape from Kolditz, the Nazis' fortress prison, Ben McIntyre argues that the story of Kolditz was about much more than escape. Its population represented a society in miniature, full of heroes and traitors, class conflicts and secret alliances, and the full range of human joy and despair. Ben McIntyre is a writer-at-large for The Times in London and the best-selling author of many books, including A Spy Among Friends, Operation Mincemeat, and The Spy and the Traitor, which he discussed with us on a program in 2019. Ben also has written and presented BBC documentaries of his work. Ben McIntyre, welcome back to Reader's Corner. Well, it's great to be back. Thank you, Bob. Well, this was just a great uh, a great read. Uh, let's kick this off by your telling us just how many prisoners did Kolditz hold at one time? Well, the population varied, but, but initially for the first couple of years, it was about 300. By the end of the war, it had shot up to about seven or 800. So it was quite densely populated towards the end. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was an extraordinary place. It still is an extraordinary place. It's this huge 11th century Gothic castle looming over a clifftop. And it, as you said at the, at the top there, Bob, it was selected by the Germans to be somewhere that was impossible to escape from. And it was a Europe in miniature, I think, is the way uh, it was uh, put in the book. Uh, tell us about uh, what was uh, so European about this uh, prison. Well, it was European in the sense that it contained British soldiers. These were all prisoners of war, British, Polish, French, Dutch, Belgian, and of course, Canadian and South African and, and Australian and New Zealanders. But of course, latterly in the war, it also contained Americans. I mean, once America had joined the war, if American agents and so on were captured behind the lines, they were almost automatically shipped off to Colditz. So it really was a kind of, it was a strangely international place. Um, and these, these prisoners, many of them were very young. Many of them were professional soldiers. And a lot of them had never met people from foreign countries before. So it became a sort of strange melting pot in a way um, for the first few years. I know the number may not be uh, completely accurate, but how close can you come to how many escapes were there over this four-year period and how many were successful? Uh, In the initial period, in the initial two years of the war, believe it or not, there was on average one escape attempt every day. (laughs) to get out of this castle. I mean, it tailed off towards the end as as the war became much more brutal and sinister. But what's so interesting about Colditz is, although it's become a kind of byword for sort of brave escapers getting out, very few of them in the end did. Something like, it was only about 30 people managed in the end to get outside the castle and to get back home. Because getting out of the castle was extremely difficult. But getting out out of Germany was even harder because you needed to have papers, you needed to speak German, you needed to have money, and you needed to have kind of disguises often. So, it, you know, there were two stages to, to doing what was known as a home run, but really there were only about 30 in all. 
Let's talk about those disguises. That was certainly one of the most fascinating aspects of the book. Uh, these prisoners were experts, and where they got the material, I'll never know, but I'll let you at least uh, share with our listeners uh, how sophisticated uh, they were in getting this material to uh, create disguises. Well, so in order to get out of Germany and to get out of the castle, you know, there were many ways to try and do it. You could build tunnels, you could scale down the walls on the outside, you could pick locks, but really you also needed to have a way of kind of getting to the next stage. And there were really two ways of doing that. Uh, and this is what they did. The, the, the soldiers began, the prisoners began to sort of manufacture inside the castle a huge amount of escape kit, if you like, false documents, fake papers, gathering money together, trying to create believable civilian clothes, trying to create German uniforms. So there was one way was to try and build them from inside. The other way was to smuggle them in. And because these were officers, under the Geneva Convention, they were allowed to have parcels sent from home. Now, those parcels were very carefully vetted by the German army that ran Colditz. They even had an x-ray machine where they would, they would sort of put the, the, the parcels under to see what was inside them. But what they didn't know was that the British and French prisoners had managed to pick the lock on the parcels office. So they could actually get into the parcels office, extract what they needed from these parcels before they were distributed or checked, and then kind of gather this stuff. And the way they gathered it was absolutely extraordinary. I mean, for example, there was money hidden inside gramophone records. There was there were fake papers hidden inside board games that were sent into Colditz. There were hacksaw blades hidden in in badminton rackets. There was even there was even one compass smuggled in inside a walnut. And there was one particular character in Britain uh, who was responsible for a lot of this escape kit. And his name was Christopher Clayton Hutton, known as Clutty. And he was one of the models for Q in the James Bond stories. And he was just extraordinary. I mean, he produced, for example, thousands of maps which were smuggled into these POW camps. And of all the prisoners that escaped from all the different camps across Germany, more than half used a map that had been provided by Clutty. So, so the way that they managed to bring the kit in is absolutely extraordinary. You mentioned the Geneva Convention. Uh, it reminds me of the fact that apparently not all prisoners were created equal in, the, in this uh, Colditz experience because you had the officers and then you had the orderlies. Could you help us with how that works out? Well, this was one of the most astonishing things that I knew. I certainly didn't know about Colditz before I began to research this book, which is that there was an enormous kind of social chasm running through the middle of Colditz, which was, although this was an officer's camp, French officers, Polish officers, British officers, those officers under the Geneva Convention had servants, and those servants were also prisoners of war. So, you know, British POWs, privates, people from the so-called other ranks, were brought in to serve the officers. And those jobs included cooking and cleaning and polishing their boots and generally, you know, acting as, as servants and batmen. And they were known as orderlies. And there was really, the, the proportion was, there was roughly one orderly for every five officers, although the very senior officers had a, had a personal servant each. And what makes this story so strange is that these, these, as it were, the sort of the working class of Colditz, and officers were not allowed to work, the working class of Colditz was not allowed to escape. They were, they were thoroughly discouraged from doing so. And none of them ever tried because in that intensely hierarchical world of the, of the army, all armies really, 
officers were perceived to be that much more valuable than ordinary soldiers. And so therefore they were privileged in the rankings of escape. And of course, the escapes were themselves organized. There was a kind of escape committee that decided who could and who, which escapes would work and which ones wouldn't. And the orderlies, these ordinary soldiers, were completely excluded from that story. Mm-hmm. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the Germans uh, who were in charge of this camp. Uh, Reinhold Eggers was the, um, the guy that ran it. And I wonder if you could share with us, uh, first of all, just how devoted these uh, Germans were to the Nazi cause, first of all. And then second, you can take it to the to the end where after World War II, he gets a little bit of his own medicine. Well, I mean, the, the, the interesting thing about Kolditz was that it was run by the German army, the Wehrmacht. So it wasn't a concentration camp. It wasn't a brutal slave labor camp. It wasn't a death camp of the sort that we've become horribly sort of familiar with. It was run according to the rules of the Geneva Convention. And the German army that ran it, on the whole, tried to stick to those rules. Now, it wasn't a holiday camp and you could be shot easily while trying to escape, but it wasn't a place of systematic brutality. And Reinhold Eggers, who was the head of security at Kolditz, was a very interesting man. In some ways, he's kind of the hidden narrator of this story, because although he was a professional German soldier, he was never a Nazi. And and that was true of quite a lot of the administrators of Kolditz. A, A minority were, a minority were fully sort of committed fascists, but Eggers was not. And and he he tried to run it by the rules, which meant that he did his best to stop anyone from escaping. And he was quite prepared to use subterfuge and espionage and and other methods to do so. But he but he was a man of honor in lots of ways. And actually, his story is very remarkable because after the war, Kolditz ended up in, in East Germany. So it was under under communist rule. And because he had run a prison camp, Eggers was believed by the Soviets to be a Nazi to be a kind of collaborator with Hitler, which he wasn't. But he was nonetheless, he was locked up in a in a Soviet, a Russian-run prisoner of war camp for 10 years. So he served far longer in prison than any of the people uh, who had been in Kolditz during the war. You're listening to Ben McIntyre. He's the author of Prisoners of the Castle, an epic story of survival and escape from Kolditz, the Nazi's fortress prison. So let's talk about Michael Sinclair. Uh, He would become the only lieutenant to receive a medal for courage during captivity. Uh, I wonder if you could share his fate with us. And I might point out, of course, that you open up your book with uh, a story entitled Franz Joseph, which is uh, one of Sinclair's attempted escapes. Absolutely. Well, Michael Sinclair was emblematic, really, of a particular kind of escaper. I mean, he was completely obsessed by escaping and he'd been captured very early on in the war and he felt emasculated by it. I mean, he he was absolutely obsessively determined to try and get back and he tried to escape more often than any other prisoner. And he had terrible luck. He just it just didn't work for him. And so the, the, the escape you're referring to was an attempt sort of in the middle of the war when Michael Sinclair developed a very elaborate disguise where he he dressed himself up as one of the German um, NCOs who happened to have very long sort of whiskers, uh, long moustaches, which, which Michael Sinclair replicated out of shaving brushes. And it was a brilliant disguise. And it would have worked and it, it was foiled at the very last moment. But 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 Michael Sinclair became desperate. He became absolutely desperate. And and right really very near the end of the war, when it was pretty clear 
to all the prisoners that that liberty was at hand. The American army was approaching. Nonetheless, Michael Sinclair, in a sort of really what was, I think, an act of suicide in the end, threw himself at the outer wire and started to climb up it. And in spite of the, the guards shouting at him to stop, to halt, he didn't. He continued going and they opened fire and he was killed. And it was and they were. But it, what's so, in a way so poignant about this story is that they didn't want to kill him. I mean, the, the Germans had great respect for Michael Sinclair. They, they reluctantly killed him during an escape. And it's it's very hard to sort of avoid the conclusion that Michael Sinclair knew he was going to die in that last attempt because he couldn't face the idea of being liberated. Mm. He he wanted to liberate himself. And I guess you could say that he found a sort of liberation in death. One escape, if you want to call it that, was based on a lesson learned from Gandhi by an Indian doctor. How did that go? Well, again, this is one of those hidden stories that has never been told about Colditz because it just didn't fit into the accepted shape, really. And this is the story of an Indian soldier called Birendranath Mazumdar, who was the only Indian, he was the only non-white prisoner in, in, in the British contingent in Colditz. And he was treated really very badly in Colditz, not by the Germans who regarded him as a propaganda opportunity, but by the British who mocked him and disdained him and teased him for his accent and made him cook curries and and would not let him try to escape. He was told very early on, you're not going to get out of here because you're the wrong colour. Um, and, and what makes Mazumdar so interesting in a way is that he was a, he was a sort of staunch Indian nationalist. Um, and the Germans tried to recruit him as a propaganda tool, really. They wanted him to broadcast uh, to India and try and persuade other Indians to rise up uh, against the, the rule of the British there. He refused. He, he said he couldn't break his word of honour to the British crown. So he went back to Colditz, where he suffered even worse, really, because they now all regarded him as a spy. So taking a lesson from Mahatma Gandhi, he went on hunger strike which was a very brave thing to do uh, in Colditz because there was precious little food anyway. Um, but after 14 days, he managed to persuade, he nearly died, he managed to persuade the commandant to move him to an all-Indian prison in, in France, in occupied France, from which Mazumdar escaped, astonishingly. He managed to climb over the barbed wire perimeter fence. Then he walked 400 miles across occupied France, to Switzerland and and managed to get into neutral Switzerland, where he was he 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 turned himself into the to the British authorities there and said, "Look, I've managed to escape." They immediately arrested him because they thought he was a spy. I mean, the, it's an extraordinary story that has been covered up, really not covered up exactly, but kind of ignored because it simply didn't fit into the the accepted mythology, which is that you know this was a prisoner, this was a prison camp for white upper middle class Englishmen. Mm-hmm. I'd like you to share with us, Ben, uh, the role of theater uh, in this prison. And I mean that in two ways. First of all, the kinds of theater and musical concerts there were. And then secondly, I believe in the case of one prisoner, Airy Neve, uh, he may have uh, used the theater department, so to speak, as a way to get uh, prepared for an escape. Well, that's exactly right, Bob. I mean, one of the things about Colditz prison was that life there was exceedingly boring for most of the time because like all prisons there was these there was nothing to do i mean these officers were not allowed to work 
So they, they pass their time in reading and discussions and learning languages and, and those sort of things. But, but the real centre of entertainment of the prison was the theatre. And, and there was a, a rather beautiful theatre built, it was a sort of 17th century theatre built in the middle of the castle. And this was the absolute focal point for theatrical performances of all types. And in fact, at the, begin, the first two years of the war, there was a new theatrical performance every week, sometimes every few days. <laughs> you know, and there was an international orchestra, there was a Hawaiian guitar band there was a polish choir there was a french choral group and it and and really every all the nations took it in turns to put on performances now the british with their love of kind of idiotic slapstick favored pantomimes and sort of skits and reviews and so on and and what the most famous one and there's a wonderful photograph of this in the book which i found uh, belonging uh, to eggers actually of of a sort of pantomime review a sort of christmas review called uh, ballet nonsense <laughs> when half the British soldiers with moustaches, these big burly men, are dressed up as ballet dancers, you know, and are, you know, cavorting across the stage uh, in paper tutus and braziers. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing, and but it was a way of kind of, it was a way of sort of imagining themselves out of the castle, I think. It was a way of kind of a, an evening of make-believe when they could pretend that they weren't locked up in this gruesome prison. And interestingly, not only were these these performances packed every night, the audiences were always packed out, but the German guards would attend them too. So you had this strange situation where, you know, the enemies were sitting down to watch these strange performances. Um, and because they were officers, the, the soldiers were allowed to have, you know, theatre paint and makeup and costumes were even sent in from Berlin and tools to build sets with. So these were really elaborate productions. But that actually worked in one way to the prisoner's advantage, which is a, a character you just referred to called Airy Neve, who would go on to become very famous. In fact, he became a great a senior advisor to Margaret Thatcher and was murdered by a terrorist bomb during the Irish Troubles in 1979. But at this point, he was a young officer in Colditz. And he, one night with an accomplice, uh, a, a, Dutch, a Dutchman, levered up the boards of the theatre stage, climbed underneath it, broke through into a kind of hidden passageway beneath it, a kind of witch's walk that ran across uh, the, the front of the, of the castle gate, climbed into these uniforms that they'd made. They'd used the sort of theatrical props department to create very convincing German uniforms as two German officers and walked out of the front door. It was an extraordinary escape. They managed to get all the way to the border with Switzerland, but it was an escape that was partly a, a sort of uh, the effect of sort of good planning. It was also down to just a raw good luck. One of the things I really enjoyed about this book, and I, I can't recommend it more strongly, uh, is is the aftermath, uh, where you take us to the lives and careers of these guys that got out, and now they're going to live the rest of their life someplace. And the Mickey Burns story, uh, to me, was was somewhat jaw dropping. Uh, not so much in the story of Mickey Burns in the castle is interesting enough, but then the fact that uh, in the aftermath, he's trying to help a former lover care for a daughter who would become. Well, I'm going to let you tell the rest of that story. <laughs> well, this is an amazing story. Mickey Byrne was a, a very fascinating figure, really. He'd been a sort of Nazi sympathizer, actually, before the war. He then became a, a committed communist because he, having realized, and also having realized kind of, as it were, the error of his ways, he volunteered for one of the most dangerous commando assignments of the war. He was captured. He spent three years in Colditz. 
Um, but before the war, he had known a woman called Baroness van Heemstra, who was a Dutch aristocrat who had also been a Nazi sympathizer, who had also turned 180 degrees. And they corresponded during the war and they remained friends. Um, and after the war, Mickey Byrne was contacted by Baroness Heemstra, who had lived in Nazi-occupied Holland under terribly difficult circumstances, writing him a letter of appeal. And she said, look, Mickey, you've got to help me. Uh, my daughter is very ill. She, you know, she has malnutrition and various other ailments from, from the occupation. Can you get us this wonder drug, penicillin, and see if we can save her life? So Mickey Byrne bartered a lot of cigarettes that he'd, he'd managed to obtain on the black market for penicillin and sent it to Baroness van Heemstra. The daughter recovered and went on to become Audrey Hepburn. That's just unbelievable. I mean, I, I got to that part of the book and I thought, what else is in this book that, that I find completely amazing? <laughs> Um, I mean, it is an amazing story. I mean, actually, Audrey Hepburn was also involved in the Dutch resistance. That's a different story. But she was a sort of trainee dancer and she she raised money for the Dutch resistance. She was extraordinarily brave. So not every prisoner was um, loyal to the cause, so to speak. Walter Purdy would be one that uh, had a much different approach to uh, serving his country. That is right. I mean, he was a fascist. He was a British fascist who was recruited. He was captured. He was he was he was he was caught in the in the in the British Navy. And he was recruited as a kind of propagandist for the Nazi cause. And then towards the end of the Colditz story, he was introduced into Colditz as what is called a stool pigeon. He was there to spy on fellow officers, in fact, and to report on their attempted escapes to to Eggers to the head of security so he was he he was found out very very quickly i mean he he only lasted a, a week or so in coldest before the other prisoners realized what was going on and he was very nearly lynched i mean he was almost killed but uh in the end he you know he managed to escape uh, escape sort of punishment uh, but he was tried after the war as a traitor walter purdy and condemned to death uh, but was reprieved at the last moment and went on to live a completely different second life, extraordinarily. I mean, he, he, you know, he sort of ended up, he never told his second family what he'd done during the war. So he's an example, really, Purdy, of the truth that while, you know, the Colditz story has always been told as a story of sort of pure heroism, the reality is that the people come in very many different shapes and sizes, and not everybody is made of this kind of straight-grained timber and Purdy is a very good example, really, of somebody who went the other way, who, who you know, whose story of Colditz is one of treachery and betrayal. You're listening to Reader's Corner. My guest today is Ben McIntyre, author of the new book, Prisoners of the Castle, an epic story of survival and escape from Colditz, the Nazi's fortress prison. Well, this book is mainly about men, which uh, for obvious reasons people can understand given World War II. But there are a couple of women I, I would like you to, to comment on. Jane Walker would be one. Strangely enough, she would become Polish. She did. I mean, she was an extraordinary woman, uh, Jane Walker. She was a Scotswoman by origin um, from, from the north of Scotland. And she married a, she'd had a very interesting sort of early life. Uh, and she'd married a Polish civil servant and settled in Warsaw. Uh, where she she lived as a Polish woman, she had a sort of Polish name, but but in reality she was running the escape networks for the Polish underground, and she became a great figure for soldiers in Colditz. Uh, uh, you know, if you could get if you could get out of Colditz and get to Warsaw, you made for Mrs. M's 
house. Um, I mean, she, she helped more than 50 escaping soldiers went through Mrs. M's network to get out of Poland, get to get to neutral countries. And, and she was an extraordinary woman, completely unsung by history. She's never been sort of recalled. Um, and yet she, you know, she lived on to, to great later life. Her network was betrayed, in fact, um, and the Gestapo came after her. And she went underground. She went she went into hiding in the Polish countryside and survived the war and ended up living in a little village on the coast of England. And how about uh, Lee Carson? Well, Lee Carson's a terrific character. I mean, she Lee Carson was uh, a woman war reporter. Um, she was one of a group of women war reporters, but she was probably the most intrepid of them all. She was a Chicago girl. She was working for a news service, the International News Service, and she covered the D-Day landings. She was the only woman to witness that. She was the first journalist into liberated Paris. And she joined the advancing army as they were heading east um, towards Kolditz. And when Kolditz was liberated in April 1945, uh, it was liberated initially by four GIs who made their way very gingerly up to the castle. Uh, they were followed by Lee Carson in a jeep and, and, and her effect, she, in addition to being a brilliant journalist, Lee Carson was extremely beautiful. And as she drove into this courtyard, her effect on these prisoners who had been locked up for four years was that she very nearly started a riot. I mean, they'd never seen, most of them hadn't seen a woman at all for four years, let alone one who looked as if she just stepped out of the pages of a glamour magazine. As you said earlier, Ben, uh, this is not a book about a concentration camp. It's about a German prison. And uh, obviously, that means that the way people are treated will be somewhat different. However, not far from the castle uh, was some of the most incredible brutality uh, World War II could give us. And and that was the, the a camp, I guess, of Hungarian Jews. That's right. I mean, it's again, it's one of the revelations really that came from researching this book is that there were not one but two camps in Kolditz town. One was this one in the castle, but but on the outskirts of town was another very different camp. And this was a slave labor camp. This was a camp for Hungarian Jews who had been rounded up and moved moved into Germany as slave labor. And they were making munitions for the German army and they died in their hundreds. I mean, the, the life expectancy in that appalling place was about three months. Yeah. And horrendously, just before Kolditz was liberated, the SS guards at that camp began murdering systematically everybody in it. There were only a tiny handful of survivors who were able to tell their story. But interestingly, that camp has been sort of more or less ignored by history because it doesn't sort of fit into the into the story that, that was told after the war. But it was, a, it was an absolutely horrendous place. Mm. And what's sort of fascinating about it really is that the prisoners in Kolditz knew nothing about it. And the guards in Kolditz, including Eggers, claimed they knew nothing about it, which is slightly less plausible in my view. Mm-hmm. But what's what's really unbelievable is that the citizens of Kolditz town also claimed they had no idea there was this death camp on the edge of their village. That is simply not believable. Mm-hmm. That is incredible. And it's just evidence really that that we remember in a way what we want to remember and we forget what we need or wish to forget. What's so fascinating about each of these stories is that uh, the reader ends up rooting for these folks. You know, it's like reading a novel. You're 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 hoping and praying that this guy's going to figure out a way to get out of there and get across Germany and into Switzerland. Uh, 
and there's many cases where it doesn't work and it gets so frustrating. It's like, oh, man, I thought that guy was going to make it. I want, to, I want you to tell us about LeRae because he is a success story. He made it well, out. Well, he is, and he was, the, he was a Frenchman. He was the first escaper from Colditz. And he, he, was, he was one of those who sort of did it on his own. He was called Alain Loret, and he was, he was from the uh, a sort of famous mountaineering military unit in, in France. He'd been captured very early on. He escaped. He then was recaptured and brought to Colditz. And he, he sort of began, in a way, the story of the escapes of Colditz because he, he hid under a, uh, under a, in a sort of disused hut, really, that was down in, near the exercise yard because the prisoners were allowed to exercise every day and they were taken to this enclosure. So he just hid there. Uh, one of his friends uh, in the French contingent managed to disguise the fact that he was missing from roll call. That night, he, he got to the wall, he climbed over. He then he had a little money. He managed to get to Nuremberg. Uh, where he where he actually mugged a German citizen to to steal his coat and get some more money. He then took another train to the Swiss border, where he climbed, believe it or not, there was a train station just before the crossing from Germany into the Swiss border. I mean, that train was very carefully searched by the German border guards. But Lorraine managed to climb onto the sort of buffer, the sort of front bumper of this train, and cling onto it between the headlights as the train passed into, into Switzerland. And it was an astonishing escape. And amazingly, Lorraine went on to lead um, part of the resistance army, part of the French resistance army. So he played a part right at the beginning of the story of Colditz and towards the end. I'm glad you mentioned that he did it on his own because I, I, I meant to ask you earlier about the escape attempts in terms of a committee? I mean, th- these, these guys were all not acting just on their own. There was some kind of a committee that would sign off on these. Is that correct? That's right. Well, because they discovered very early on that because each national group really was sort of launching its own escapes, these uh, and individuals were attempting their own escapes. There were so many attempted escapes going on that they were at one point, there were something like four or five different tunnels being dug out of Colditz. And they were literally, these escapes were literally undermining each other. They were sort of digging underneath each other. And so it was decided there really had to be some degree of coordination between these things, because otherwise they were just going to keep tripping each other up. Mm-hmm. So, so what ended up happening is that each national contingent, as it were, had its own escape committee. So there was an escape officer who was in charge of sort of vetting different escape plans. It didn't stop everybody because some people insisted on going it alone anyway. And the idea was that these escape officers would then liaise with the other escape officers from different in a sort of international escape committee. Mm-hmm. And then they would try and work out how best to coordinate with each other. Mm-hmm. I mean, like all international uh, organizations like that, it sort of worked very well until it didn't. Not everybody played the game in quite the same way. But on the whole, it was, a, it was a good way of making sure that they didn't sort of constantly get in each other's way. So I have time for one more question, and why not bring it up to the present day? What is Colditz today? Well, Colditz today is still this extraordinary castle. In fact, part of it is now a, a, a youth hostel. You can go and stay in Colditz. And I did last year. I spent a couple of weeks uh, living in Colditz, which was a bizarre place to choose to have a summer holiday, I can tell you. But, I guess. 
But it's a strange place. In a way, it's it's a most impressive piece of architecture. It has 700 rooms and you can visit the tunnels. You can go down into the places where these prisoners tried to get out. And every time they they carry out renovation on the castle, they discover more escape equipment from the war hidden in the attics, hidden in the walls, hidden in the floorboards. So it's still it's still surrendering its secrets, Colditz. But it's a place full of ghosts. It was an eerie place. Uh, to spend a few days and and it's it's a most remarkable it's just an extraordinary place it, it sort of looms over the countryside you can see it from miles and miles away this kind of dracula's castle well we're going to wind it up here but i did uh, have one more question that i'm not going to ask because i think what's so incredible about this book you've written is the ferocious battle between the germans and the americans who freed colditz uh, at the at the close of the book, and I think that's something we're going to leave for readers. Uh, just like we never give anything away in novels, we're not going to give anything away on this one either. Uh, ben McIntyre, I want to thank you for joining us today at Reader's Corner. It's been an absolute delight. I urge our listeners to get out and get a copy of Prisoners of the Castle. Thank you. It's been a huge pleasure. Reader's Corner is presented by Boise State Public Radio News. The engineer for today's show is Eric Jones, with production by Joel Wayne. I'm Bob Custer. Please join me next week as we talk to today's leading writers about the ideas and issues that help shape our world at Reader's Corner. Reader's Corner.